last uh, several weeks, we have been dealing with uh, a deep, what I kind of want to think of as a somewhat deep dive into James and trying to understand James's story in context of what they were dealing with in life. Because I believe much of what the first century believers in the Jerusalem area were dealing with is not that unlike what we deal with in our culture today. Coming on the heel of a strong word about being respectful to all people, James turns to the idea of living a genuine faith. And I remember they were living in a time that was difficult uh, and, and maybe even vile. They wrote, uh, they were being attacked by the Jews for accepting Jesus. They were also being attacked and abused by the Romans for following another king. Christians of pretty much every generation kind of stick out as sore thumbs if we really are living our lives for the Lord because we're not like the world. We're not in of the world, though we're in the world. Life for them was not easy. And there was something strange. There's something strange about a hard season of life. I know all of us have gone through difficult seasons that are difficult and hard. And, and, and what they tend to do for us is they show us who we really are. Because when things get tough and we get pressed from all sides, we really figure out who we are in the hardships, in the hard times, in the difficult times. And uh, they help us define who we are. Now, we've all heard stories, heroic stories of, of men and women who have faced battlefield decisions. In the middle of it, we could tell story after story of people who have battlefield stories. Um, uh, that one that came out a few years ago about that, that pacifist who was in the war and was a medic and had to go up and save all those lives. It was just an amazing story. I can't think of the guy's name right now, but, but you remember those stories like that. And, and in the face of hardship and, and battles and battlefields and life, we either crumble or we rise to the occasion, just like a, a warrior does. And the truth is, we don't find the ability to rise to the occasion in the moment. If you look back in their lives, you find that there was a series of decisions, a series of actions, a series of choices that have led them to the place where when the time was right, when things were hard, the good shows up. That's the way it is for us as well. And the moment is a culmination. So with the people of James's day facing attacks on both sides, they're going to reveal what's in their lives and they're going to show what they're made of in the moment. So I want to read the entire passage because we want to get it in context and then come back and look at this idea of living a genuine faith. What good is it, my brothers, if someone, and the key word of that passage is says, hang in there with it, says he has faith but does not have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with works, and faith was completed by works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works 
is dead. Father, I pray that as we look at these three ways that we could live and how to live out faith, God, that you would show us what genuine faith really is. That we could live lives that honor you, that bless you and lift you up, but also, God, make a difference in those around us and bless those around us in a way that only those of us who know Jesus can really do. Help us to be those people in the world that so desperately needs to see your love and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's three things I want you to see about faith. I was talking with somebody before church. I've noticed in my years of preaching that the longer the outline, the shorter the sermon, and the shorter the outline, sometimes the longer the sermon. We're going to see how it works out today. But the first thing I want you to notice this morning is this, is that genuine faith is not hollow words. It's not hollow words. Look at the passage again. Let's get the memory verse in context as we've been memorizing it. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in, poor, lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warm, filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good or what benefit is that? Also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Now, scholars have debated this passage literally for centuries because it's, it's a tough one to deal with. It's one of those, it's, it's got issues in it. You read it on the surface and you go, something's different here than what Paul wrote. Paul talked about uh, over in uh, Ephesians that it's by grace we're saved. Y'all remember that passage? For by grace are you saved? I've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God and not a result of works that no one would boast. Some will look at this passage and say, you see, I knew the scripture had a conflict in it. James is saying, you work for it, and Paul is saying, it's all a gift. Y'all with me? And that struggle that some have in that passage, you're going, what's going on? Some have said, well, it's just a mystery. We'll ask God when we get to heaven. He'll explain it to us, and we'll go on, and we're not going to worry about it. Others, uh, and so those are the two ways you can look at it. I actually believe this, that they actually complement each other. And it's because we don't have a, a, a properly defined and, and developed definition of salvation, that we struggle with this. We think, well, James says you've got to do something to get saved. You've got to do this and this and this or you're not saved. And Paul, and Paul says, well, it's all by faith. It's like, no, so we're there. He's talking, what's going on here, I think, is this, is one of them is talking about the moment, the moment of salvation. And the other is talking about the process of salvation. Now, let, let me kind of dig into that a little bit. The moment of salvation is that moment when you sense the Holy Spirit of God Speaking in your heart, you may have been a seven-year-old boy like I was. You may be a 55-year-old woman. You may be a 20-year-old adult. It doesn't matter how old you are. But the point comes that you go, I'm missing something. I need what God has for me. And you sense the Spirit of God tugging on your life, however you want to describe it. Uh, John Wesley described it as his heart was strangely warm. That's how he described it. For me, I was a seven-year-old boy, knew something was missing. I went and asked my dad. I said, what am I missing? He goes, well, you don't know Jesus. And I go, well, how do you know Jesus? He goes, oh, let's go talk to the pastor. And I'll help you. He'll help you out. My dad wanted a place he was comfortable to do it himself. So we went. And he walked me through salvation. That was the point of salvation. That's what Paul is talking about when he says, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone would both. That moment, moment when you come into that relationship with God. James isn't talking about the moment of salvation. He's talking about the process of salvation. You're going, the process of salvation? This is what happens from the day of salvation till the death of the believer. We are living in the process. 
we're being changed, mysteriously and wonderfully changed day by day by day as we surrender to God more and more and more of who we are. James firmly believed that mere hollow words alone without an accompanying spiritual work indicates a lack of faith. For a person to say, oh, I know God, but there's nothing that backs it up with action, we got a problem. Genuine faith is not hollow words. A person who, who says they have faith and they've encountered a, a need and they look at the person and say, oh, well, bless your heart. That's how we say it down around here, right? In the scripture, he says, go in peace. Now, what he does here is kind of fascinating because he does it twice in our text this morning. He sets up what's called a straw man. It's a, it's a literary device where you set up a person who's not real to be your object of the story, and you deal with that story. He deals with a straw man here, and he says, if anybody says, if, if one of you says, that's the straw man, go in peace. But you don't give them what they need, what good is that? Faith by itself is worthless. Folks, there are people struggling in our community right now with food security that we can meet needs. There are people walking in difficult health circumstances. Some of you are dealing with some hardships in your life that you just, you just you're burdened with it. There's people all around us that need the presence of God. And when we look at them and say, oh, well, God bless you, and then walk away, when we know about the need, when we know about the need, that's a problem. That's showing that our faith is not real. So it's just hollow words. You know, genuine faith is never hollow words without an action that comes along with it. Genuine faith leads us to do, listen, what we can do to make a difference. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in, in, in later in the message, but I want you to catch that thought. Number two, genuine faith is also not something else. It's not mental assent or mental agreement. Someone will say, here's our second straw man, by the way. But someone will say, you have faith. And I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So with the thought that genuine faith is not hollow words, we get this second argument here, this straw man argument of an argument that says this, faith centered on the mind is not enough. Genuine faith is not just agreeing in your mind going, oh, I agree with it. That's true. Now, listen, faith in Christ definitely and undoubtedly interacts with our minds. I don't think God ever calls us to be mindless and just go, okay, God, I trust you in everything and I'm not going to think it through and I'm just going to walk. And I'll go. We have to walk by faith, yes, but we also have to walk with some intelligence and some thought and some common sense even for those of us who have common sense. We use that, right? And so we go through that. But, but he's setting this up like they're mutually exclusive positions. Well, our music leader has faith, well, but I have works. Those are not mutually exclusive positions. Positions. Those are positions that have to complement each other. So, so if we're walking there with mental assent, we've got a problem. So you may know the right fa- phrases. You may have the right doctrine. You may always do the right thing. You may be a member of the right church. You may be a part of the same right Sunday school class. You might be the one who gives the right percentage to the, to the Lord in, in tithing and giving. But something's missing. Again, he's dealing, listen, with the working out of our salvation, not the process of coming to know Christ in the first place. He's talking about the, the movement of salvation. Paul phrased the concept this way when he wrote to the church at Philippi. He said, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not also, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. He says this, work out 
Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You're going, wait a second, he's telling me to work out my salvation. He is not telling you to work for your salvation. He's telling you to work out your salvation. Catch the difference there because the reality is I'm not the same person I was when I came to know Jesus at seven years old. Well, one, there's a whole lot of years between those two, right? But I've also had the opportunity to grow in in my faith. I've studied more about the scriptures. I learned more about Jesus. Just like you have, if you came to know Christ at a time before today, you've had a process that's brought you to this moment. It's more than mental assent. The outcome of the moment of salvation is a life transformed in the moment and a life being transformed day by day into the likeness of God. James commends them. He says, hey, that's good. You got it figured out. You got it mentally figured out. That's great. But if that person does not change the life, if that faith doesn't change the life of the person through the actions, then the belief is in vain. And then he gives a very poignant example. Did you notice what he says in there? This is fascinating to me. He says, oh, by the way, even the demons believe in God. I don't know how that sets with you. But he says, the demons believe in God. Oh, oh, and they shudder too. They have a fear for God. They have a respect for God. They have this idea. Now get this. The demons of hell believe that God is one. They believe that God is sovereign. They believe that God is merciful. They believe that God is gracious. They believe that God is patient. They believe that God is loving. They believe he's faithful. They believe he's forgiving. They believe he's just. Man, they sound like good Christians, don't they? But there's not one of us in this room that would say, well, I'm sure the demons are going to be in heaven one day. Right? They're not going to be. Why? Because though they know a lot about God and they know a lot of things that God is, they don't personally know God. Merely having head knowledge of Jesus without heart knowledge of Jesus resulting in actions that reflect Jesus' presence never survives the assault on the island of life, does it? It doesn't last. Because in the trials and battles of life, they find themselves saying silly things like, well, God bless you, based on mental assent, but no change in their lives. And when they say things without action, they're no better than the demons of hell who say, well, we believe in God but there's no change. So if faith is not hollow words and faith is not mental assent, what is faith? James brings the answer in verses 20 to 26. Genuine faith is this. It's transformative. It, it changes us. We can't stay the same. I remember a song years ago, it would never, 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 ever be the same. Remember that line in that song? I don't know what song it was, but it was a great song. That we tell, he starts out with this. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Oh, yes, please show me that, James, so I don't miss it. Now, none of us is going to say that out loud, but we need to have that attitude. This is God, show us if we're foolish that faith apart from works is useless. Then he does something that is culturally relevant to the people of James. Remember, James lived where? Jerusalem. He lived with people who were what? Primarily Jewish in their orientation and background who had come to faith in Jesus and have trusted him as the Messiah and Savior, the Christ. They grew up hearing the stories of the Old Testament every Sabbath. 
When they gathered at the synagogue, they would hear the stories. When they go to the temple, they would hear the stories. The Old Testament was a lot of stuff to learn, but it was a whole lot less than we got today, right? And they would hear the stories again and again. So what he does is he gives them two stories that they would go, I know that story. I know that story. Did you see him? The first one was Abraham. He says, was Abraham our father justified by works? Justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is that the story I'm thinking of? It is absolutely the story you're thinking of. It's when uh, Abraham took his son uh, Isaac and went to Mount Moriah. Oh, by the way, that's the same mountain that the temple of God sat on that they would actually worship in the colonnades around in James's day. He says, did not Abraham bring Isaac right, right here? You remember the story? And he bound him up and put him on an altar and was about to, to kill him when God provided what? A ram. Did that act save Abraham? It did not. It showed that he trusted God completely, that he had faith in God. That's the story he's giving. He says, I want you to catch this, guys. Abraham did it. Uh, he, he came here and he see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled. Abraham believed faith, if we want to put it in proper theology and really bad English, Abraham faithed God. Because that's what he did. He didn't just, I believe that y'all are sitting down and I'm standing up. Did that save me? No, that's not saving faith. Saving faith is when we trust, when we believe God, we faith him. And it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Wow. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Then he gives a second story that they would go, oh, yeah, I know that story. Y'all remember this story? And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works. Now, you remember, this was the lady who lived on the wall of Jericho. When God's people were coming to possess the land, they came in the land. Y'all know the story. They marched around the wall. They marched around the wall one time, and then tomorrow they did it another time, and then another time. And then they came back and marched how many times? Seven. Okay, y'all did. You listened to Sunday school. Good. Seven. You did. I know because you told us earlier. Seven times around it, and then what happened? The walls fell. What happened to Rahab though? She was saved. Why? Because of her actions. No, her actions revealed her faith was genuine. Remember, Rahab is a, what's the story? Not descendant, but ascendant of Jesus. She's in the lineage of Jesus. Prostitute in the story. So James is saying, guys, you need to understand that this is an amazing situation they have. His faith was revealed in his action. Abraham's was. Her faith is revealed in her actions by what she did. And what he was leading the people in his congregation to see was this, the transformative power of faith. Genuine faith changes us. Maybe not instantly. Anybody arrive yet? Spiritually? Y'all, anybody, y'all want to stand up and testify how you have arrived and the perfection is now yours and you're, yeah, me either. But hopefully you're not the same person you were yesterday and you're not the same person you were 10 years ago if you're that old. More than three decades ago for some of us, right? Or six decades ago for some. That God is continuing to change us. The body apart from the spirit is dead. Faith apart from works is dead. You got to have both for it to happen. They needed to be a body with the spirit indwelling. Otherwise they were dead. 
And being spiritually dead, they wouldn't survive the vile times they were in. Okay, three quick things. And I told you, we'll probably finish earlier today. Write it down. So when I go over next time, you won't get upset. Okay. I have shared this principle before, but I think it's one that we need to come back and review again and again from time to time because we, I want to fix it all, don't you? I want to be responsible for everything. And if you do that, it can really drive you nuts. This is the principle I picked up from Pastor Stanley years ago, so I'm giving him credit. I didn't write this original, but I will apply it in the way that I think it's right. Our first principle is not a new one, but it's one we need to be reminded of. It's do for one what you wish to do for all. When I came across this principle about 10 years ago, it really kind of caught me off guard because I'm thinking to myself, well, I think I'm supposed to do everything, aren't I? And that's the power of this statement. It comes to the realization, my friends, that you alone cannot do everything. You cannot meet every need. You cannot meet every situation. You cannot take every problem in the world on you. I do that. You may not, but I do that sometimes. I want to make it all my fault. I mean, it's it's cool this morning. It's my fault. It rained tomorrow. It's going to rain tomorrow. It's my fault. It's not. It just happened. Some things just happen. I got no control over. And so, in this life, if we're not careful, we can become overwhelmed. We think, "Oh, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this." Where do we start? What do we do first? You ever find yourself with that on your mind? You're going. So here's what many of us do. We go. There's so many needs. There's so many problems. There's so much going on. Here's what I'll do. I just won't do anything. I can't fix it all. I can't help everybody, so I'll just do nothing. And I think that's the wrong way to do with life. God calls us in our faith, in our Christian faith, to do what we can in the moment we find ourselves in. Thus, this statement, do for one what you wish you could do for others, or for all or for others. The reality is, my friends, you cannot take care of everybody's problems. You can't fix everybody's issues. You cannot help everybody. Does that mean they don't have value? Of course they do. Does it mean they don't matter? Of course it doesn't. It does, they matter, don't they? But I can't do it all. Can you do it all? I can't do it all. Can you do it all? I cannot do it all. I may try to sometimes, but we have to stop. So we got to step back and say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. When God places that situation in my life, that person in front of me that I can make a difference in, small, medium, large difference, I'm going to go do that. And I'm going to do for that person what I really would want to do for everybody if I could. But there's only so many hours in a day and so much resources in my pocket and so much strength I have in my body that I can only do this, this, and this. And I'm going to do for them what I can. And you're going, well, that, that, that's kind of, doesn't that mean you, you're not going to take care of some? Listen, there's always going to be some you can't take care of because there's only one of you. Don't get yourself in a tizzy over that stuff. And some will say, well, you took care of them. You didn't take care of me. Man, I'm sorry. I'm doing everything I can with the time I've got and the skill I've got. You do what you can. The beauty of this is, listen, if I'm taking care of the one or two around me that I'm doing what I would like to do for everybody, and you're doing the same thing, and she's doing the same thing, and he's doing the same thing, and they're doing the same thing, a whole lot more needs to be met than if we just sit back and go, well, I can't do anything, so I'm not doing anything. I can't fix it all, so I'm not doing anything. We've got to step in and do what we can do. I'm reminded of Paul's words to the church at Galatia when he said this, let us not grow weary of doing good. Don't give up. In due season, we'll reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have what? Catch that, underline it in your Bible if you're okay with it. As we have opportunity. 
You know, one of the things that I struggle with as a pastor, I, I feel like I need to go to every single hospital room every time. And some weeks, that's no problem. I can do that. Sometimes it's one. I can handle that. What if there's eight? What if there's ten? We've never had that many. But what if what if it entails driving three or four hours to see one and then three or four hours back? Or an hour or two? All of a sudden, your life is all about driving to... There's certain things that you cannot do everything. So you do the best you can for the ones who are in front of you and trust others that will take care of others in the situation. If more of us are doing what we can do for the one, the other needs will be met. And it's not about one person doing it all. It's about all of us doing it together, isn't it? And taking care of those around us. So second, don't do, do for one that you, what you wish you could do for all. Second, don't settle for mere belief. While we need to believe to experience salvation, yes, we have to have, yeah, i got to tell you, at seven years old, I didn't know about eschatology or soteriology or pneumatology. You're going, what is he talking about? It's okay. You don't have to know these things. About whether it's premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. I didn't know any of that stuff at seven. Did you know that? I knew nothing. All I knew was what? I needed Jesus. Okay? And I trusted Christ. But in that moment, I had to have enough belief to understand that I did not have what I did not have, that I needed something better, just like you did in that moment of salvation, right? You don't, we, we believe. But if that is where we stop, we're settling for mere belief. There's more to it than that. One of the legacies of the revival movement of the 18th and 19th centuries in American Christianity in particular is the idea that a profession of faith is all you need to go to heaven. Listen to me. A profession of faith is absolutely required to have salvation. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. But if that is where it stops... And there's no heart change. There's no transformation from the inside out. There's no living, different way of living, no way of walking that's transformed. Something's missing. Something's missing. We'll walk an aisle, we'll get baptized, join the church, and we think, I'm good. I'm done. Check that off my list. Move on. James makes it crystal clear that the process of salvation is not merely having the right belief. There's more to it than that. In some ways, what we've done in the, in the, in the evangelical Christian movement is just as bad as what the Catholic Church was doing before the Reformation, where they would say, well, here's what you want to do. You, you, you accepted Jesus in the, in the Eucharist and, the, and you've got that. So now you want to go sin, we're going to sell you an indulgence. Go do that. And you can do whatever you want to. There's more to Christian faith than just having this belief in your head that says, if this is true, the cults of various generations would be on the road to heaven. If, if we could just have the right belief, the demons of hell are going to heaven someday. Did you know that? They, are, they got better belief than some Baptists I know. They got it figured out. But friends, if that were true, all the names of people written on church rolls across America who never show up for their worship services when they can because they've allowed something to get in the way, we'd be in a lot better shape. We knew Jesus. Friends, faith, true faith, does something that 
transformative in our lives, changes us. Consider the words of Jesus when he described the difficulty of entering the path to heaven. We prayed it a minute ago. Enter the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You may have heard of a guy named Charles Spurgeon. Us in church world, we talk about him a lot because he's got some really cool, pithy things he says. You know, he was one of the first mega church pastors. I mean, he had this massive, and he had no sound system. I mean, he would preach to thousands of people with just his voice. I'm thinking he must have not said anything for two days after. I mean, just, I can't imagine doing that. But on his deathbed, it's purported to have said that he believed, listen, 80% of his congregation, he believed, were lost. My prayer is that statistic isn't true, but my experience tells me it may not be too far off in many churches. We say, oh, just walk the aisle and you're good to go. And I think James would say, oh, no, walk the aisle and you're ready to grow. It's time to move forward. It's time to progress. It's time to develop. It's time to deepen your faith. You know, one of the things that we just miss out in, in, in Protestant Christianity is the idea of um, the spiritual disciplines, of getting into the Word, of, of communing together with each other, of sharing life. We don't do that as much as we could. We miss it. We say, well, I'm just me and Jesus. i got to tell you, it's more than just me and Jesus. It's me and you and you and you and you and you and you and me and Jesus. You all with me? It's all of us together. We often have a form of godliness but deny the power. And we wonder why people don't want what we have. Why they don't want to be a part of church anymore. I got to tell you, coming and sitting in this building on Sunday morning won't get you anywhere. But knowing Jesus and letting him change your heart will. Don't settle for mere belief. And then last, and we've already kind of touched on it, Allow genuine faith to change your life. Well, Patrick, I I haven't arrived yet. Listen, none of us have arrived. This is the process we're in. Moving forward, becoming better, becoming more like what he wants us to do. There's a principle. Once released, genuine faith, once released in our lives, will begin to change everything in our lives. It will renew our minds. Our priorities will be rearranged. Our desires will be radically adjusted, and the way we live will be vastly different from the world. Don't sit there thinking this. If I, I don't have enough faith to live like James was calling his church to live, I can't do what he was calling them to do. The world is, is off the rails, if you haven't noticed. The ways of most people are so against God's ways, it's just not even funny anymore. And, I, and we think to ourselves, I can't do it. Let me tell you something. You don't have to do it. You go, well, I just gotta get better. I gotta get stronger. I gotta go, I gotta be more in tune with God. I gotta do this and this and this. Listen, you don't have to do it. What you have to do is allow the Holy Spirit of God to lead you to become the person that He wants you to be. And when you release that faith in God that He's given you, whether it's big or small, you, you'll be transformed. You know, there's a story that has always fascinated me. Back in the, in the, in the Gospels, the disciples would do some pretty, pretty amazing things. They would go out and they would cast out demons. Now you're probably going, well, that didn't really happen, did it? Well, I guess I'm simple enough to think it's in the Scripture. It happened. But there was a situation where the the, the disciples went out and there was a boy that had a a demon, and they went to cast out the demon. 
And the demon goes, I ain't leaving. Looked at them and laughed. You don't have any control here. So the daddy of the boy loved his kids so much, he did what? He says, oh, well, I'm going to take him to the guy who can really do it. I'm going to take him to Jesus. Took him to Jesus. Do you remember what happened? Jesus spoke and the demon left the boy. And after the story was over, the disciples looked at Jesus and said, hey, dude. I mean, he didn't say dude. But he said, hey, why'd I fail? Why, did, why couldn't we do that? Why were we unable to cast out the demon there? And Jesus said, those come out with fasting and prayer. It takes a little more than you. And he says to them at the end of the story, he says, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to the mountain, move it from here to there, and it will move and nothing is impossible. His solution for them was not to work harder or to do more good works. What they had to do is what we have to do. We have to release the faith that we actually have. Some people say, I want to grow in my faith. How do you grow in your faith? You take a a faith step. Take that first step he opens for you. So how many times God will lay out a faith step in front of us? You go, I'm not doing that. And they go, but God, I want my faith to grow. No, you don't. He says, here's the first step. And you wouldn't take the first step. So often we look at what he's presented to us in the scripture about how to live a life for God. And we go, I don't want to do that. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to change that in my life. I don't want God's transformation here. I don't want this. I want to have a little Jesus here and be good to go to heaven. And that's the problem, my friends. We've got to let genuine faith change our lives. Not work harder, not work smarter, but let him change us. If they could move mountains with their little bit of faith, what can you do with your faith you have been given? From the Lord. The place it starts, though, is what? In a point of salvation. Some of you may not know Jesus. You say, well, I'm a member of the church. Congratulations. That a dollar gets you a dollar. It's important that we're part of a body of believers. Don't misunderstand. I love coming together and seeing folks in our church and and being able to uh, hug occasionally and not hug occasionally and shake and fist bump or whatever. Whatever everybody wants to do at the moment, I don't. It's okay. But being a member of this church doesn't give me salvation. Faith in Jesus gives us salvation. If you don't know Christ, that's the place to start. For many of us, we know Jesus, but we have reverted back to this. Well, I can't do anything for everybody. I can't do something for everybody, so I just won't do anything. And so we sit there. I think we're miserable when we do that. We miss out on the great blessings God has for us by doing what He has for us. Yesterday morning, I'm not. This is not bragging. I'm just telling you. This fall, I, every fall the last few years, I've had the opportunity to work with with the, the student ministries on the campuses and stuff. And at 5.30 yesterday, you know there's a 5.30 in the morning. I always thought it was the only one in the afternoon. We were in the kitchen of the church with several several church people from our church cooking sausages and making biscuits and putting together bags for a band to go play. At 6.45 yesterday morning, they were leaving. You know who got the biggest blessing out of that? Those of us who went and served. Others have served on Fridays for lunches. You don't have to do it through that to get blessed, but there are places to get out there and get involved, plug in, let God use your gifts and talents however he can. And that's where most of us are. We're missing the life of faith. Let's pray together. Father, we pray you'll bless us as we respond to your Spirit's leading. God, there's some here who need to trust you. 
But many of us, God, it's not a matter of trusting you. It's a matter of taking that first step of faith that you've given us after salvation to go do what you've called us to do, to be your hands and feet to a world that needs you, to love you and to love the people around us. In Jesus' name. Father, we pray your hand on this moment as we respond in your, uh, to your leading in our lives. In Jesus' name.